You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. House Majority Whip Representative James Clyburn joins the Post to talk about President Biden's first 100 days in office. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another installment in our series, First 100 Days. That President Biden is in office to celebrate 100 days can be traced back to a press conference in February of 2020 in North Charleston, South Carolina, and the timely endorsement of my guest this afternoon. He is the Dean of South Carolina's congressional delegation and is the House Majority Whip. He is Congressman James Clyburn. Whip Clyburn, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for having me back. So President Biden laid out an ambitious vision for the country in his joint session speech earlier this week. You've said the president's first 100 days have been a tremendous success. Why specifically do you feel that way? Well, several reasons. The first one is that he is keeping his promise to the American people. And as he said from the very beginning, he was going to focus on getting us beyond this pandemic. He said that in the first 100 days, he was going to do 100 million vaccinations. Some people said that was a little bit ambitious. Well, he got there in 60 some odd days. And then he repassed and said, I'm going to do another uh, 100 million uh, by the end of 100 days. Got there in 92 days. We've now done 230 million vaccinations. That is enough reason uh, for you to feel good about where we are going. We now had New York saying they're going to open up uh, fully on July 1. Other places opening back up, school, children going back to school. That, to me, is the first sign. The second one is that the expressions uh, of um, optimism uh, that we're getting from the American people. Uh, for the first time in a long time, people are feeling much more positive about the future uh, growth and development of this great country. And that's because Joe Biden has lowered the temperature. He has uh, done the kind of things that the American people think he should do. The rescue plan, really connecting uh, with the ordinary people. We are bringing uh, people's ideas uh, out of the uh, atmosphere or uh, and bringing them down to where people are relating to people in a very personal way. That, to me, is how you move an agenda forward. This president is more connected with the American people uh, than anybody thought uh, he could be uh, in 100 days. Well, let's talk more about the president's agenda in his speech. He outlined both his American Jobs Plan, which has a $2.3 trillion price tag. He also talked about his American Families Plan, which has a $1.8 trillion dollar price tag. Um, both of those programs envision a major expansion of government programs and federal subsidies. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah, and Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, both have sort of complained or made noises about or expressed concerns about, about these price tags, just how high they are. Isn't the sticker shock valid? You know, I wonder why we didn't hear anything from Mitt Romney or from Joe uh, Manchin. 
when we had that $1.9 trillion tax cut. $1.9 trillion tax cut with the benefits of which 80% of it went to the upper uh, 2 or 3% in this country. Nobody said how big a, tech, a bigger uh, sticker shocker that was. I would ask them to talk to a few people and find out what it's going to be like if we don't make this investment. And that's why Joe Biden is getting along so well with the American people, because he is not putting a price tag on their dreams, or on their future growth and development. He is, in fact, saying we are going to make the necessary investments so you can have this growth, so you can have uh, the realization of your dreams. Uh, for us to sit back now after giving the, the richest people in this country, the big corporations, $1.9 trillion tax cut, now all of a sudden we're saying it's too expensive to get people uh, food to eat, a job to have, get broadband in their homes, uh, get their schools uh, renovated uh, so that they can go back to a safe school. These things are so important to basic people. And that's why we have so much distrust of government, because so many of us in the government keep our heads up in the clouds when people are out here trying to make a living. Joe Biden is right down where people are. Uh, he is doing what people need to have done for them, and he is going to be very successful because of it. Let's zero in on the American Jobs Plan, or as other folks um, shorthanded as the infrastructure bill. When it comes to the American Jobs Plan, Republicans have honed in on just the traditional infrastructure items to present a, a bill, a counteroffer, that has a price tag of $568 billion, about a quarter of the $2.3 trillion uh, plan proposed by President Biden. This is a three-part question. First part, is that a serious counteroffer to your mind? Not to me. Not to me. We need, in order to have broadband uh, in every home, we need to build out uh, over the next uh, 10 years uh, a broadband program that in and of itself would be $100 billion. Uh, we need to have community health centers expanded so that everybody uh, in this uh, country can be within uh, commuting distance of the federally qualified community health center. We are not going to be able to do what is necessary for us to do uh, for people uh, in need, the need of health care. If you don't have telehealth, if you don't have telemedicine, we aren't going to be able to educate our children if we don't have online uh, learning. And we can't have any of that unless we have broadband. Now, when we start talking about traditional infrastructure programs, I can remember when the railroad was not traditional. It was not until Abraham Lincoln stepped up in the Transcontinental Railroad that railroads became an infrastructure item. Dwight Eisenhower, back in the 50s, gave us the interstate highway. That's now traditional. Well, broadband one day is going to be traditional. It ain't going to be today. And that's why Joe Biden is going to make it so. These are the kinds of things that he's doing to connect with the American people because he's being futuristic. He knows what's out there in the future. He knows what electricity did for rural America in the last century. And he knows that broadband will be similar in this century. Second part of this three-part question, would it be okay to you to break up the American Jobs Plan and pass those pieces that have bipartisan agreement 
as bipartisan is described as Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill? Well, you know, uh, I'm not uh, a person to think you've got to have all you ask for uh, when you ask for it. If there is going to be a down payment on getting this done, if we need to break it up in order for some people who will be for one part and can't be for the other, what we need to do is get the 50% plus one for all of it. And so there are some people who will be for broadband and may not be for other things. And so, yes, if you need to, break it up. That doesn't mean you're throwing anything away. That means the calculations but what gives you 50 votes or 51 votes on broadband may be different from what will give you 51 votes uh, on uh, what I would call uh, expanding community health centers. So, yes, nothing wrong with breaking it up. Interesting. Huh. So then I don't know if this third question even matters, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> um, do you think then, um, well, should Democrats pursue reconciliation a second time, this time to get the American Jobs Plan uh, through on just a simple majority vote? Oh, that should be our fallback position. Let's go and try to reach out to the other side. Let's see what we can do about bringing people uh, to the table and getting what we need under what we call regular order. Uh, that's the best thing to do. But if we can't do it under regular order, Let's not sacrifice the program because of that. Uh, let's go with reconciliation. You know, uh, we never, I don't know why people won't remember, but look at the Emancipation Proclamation was not uh, uh, Congress. That was one person, Abraham Lincoln, with an executive order. We integrated the armed services. Truman did it in 1948 with an executive order. One person. Congress wouldn't do it. And so just because Congress won't do it doesn't mean it should not be done. And so just because we can't get 51, uh, say, Republicans, 50 Republicans to agree to it, doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. Here is a guy whose program is polling better than 50% among Republicans, better than 60% among independents, better than uh, 85%, 90% among Democrats. So we aren't going to do it because you can't get 50 guys and gals in the Senate to do it. Come on. Um, there are, Republicans have been saying that President Biden is being pulled too far to the left. And you, you have pr progressives in the House, like Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington, who's the chair of the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus, and also Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, um, who are pleasantly surprised by how Biden is governing. So you've known the president for decades. The question here is, has Biden changed or have the times changed or both? You know, uh, there's always this debate going around as to what happens to a person when they reach the presidency. Do they grow into it uh, or do they try to pull the office down to them uh, or uh, do they meet the times? I always knew from the long discussions that I've had with Joe Biden over the many years that we've interacted with each other, I knew that he was a man for the time. And I am not surprised at all. I got a lot of flack when I endorsed him back uh, in uh, February of 2020. 
Some people said some pretty nasty things about me. Uh, oh, I wish I could see some of them now. Uh, to ask, <laughs> what do you think now? Uh, so I'm not surprised at all. I always knew that if given the opportunity, you know, uh, it, it's like running in a, in, in a primary election and running in a general election. Uh, a lot of times, if you're going to win the Democratic primary, you got to be a little bit to the left before working your way back to the Senate. If you're going to win the Republican primary, it got to be a little bit to the right before working yourself back to the Senate. The people who are successful are the people uh, who work their way back to the Senate and try to govern from there. Uh, Joe Biden is governing center left. He's not falling for the almighty pie in the sky stuff. He is doing what is necessary uh, to camp out left to center in such a way that I am very, very pleased and the country seemed to be as well. Well, as my colleague Ruth Marcus said on First Look this morning, if anyone had bothered to read then candidate Joe Biden's policy papers, they would see that he is actually governing on what he promised to do in those policy papers. But let's talk about someone else um, who is in the Senate, your fellow South Car Carolinian, uh, Senator Tim Scott, who was tapped to give the Republican response to President Biden's joint session speech. Um, he, he argued that the, that the president has gone back on his commitment, his promise, quote, actions, uh, his promise to bring everyone together to govern bipartisan, uh, in a bipartisan manner. And Senator Scott argues that the president's, quote, actions are pulling us further ap apart. Do you agree with that? The numbers absolutely don't bear that out. I've seen the numbers of the last uh, 24, 48 hours. They, be, they say that people are feeling much more positive about this country, much more positive about this person. Joe Biden is above 50% all across the board. And I would say to my friend and colleague, uh, Tim Scott, uh, compare Joe Biden uh, to the president that he supports and who has the most favor with the American people. Uh, so I, I would say to him, uh, that uh, the numbers just don't bear out what you're saying. Let's keep talking about Senator Scott and other things he said in, in his response to the president's speech, particularly his comments on, on race uh, and his viewpoint on race, and specifically it, him saying flat out, making, uh, saying flat out, America isn't a racist country. Um, just, First, your, your reaction to that aspect, that part of Senator Scott's speech. I agree with him on that. I don't think a racist country would have elected uh, Barack Obama as president or Kamala Harris as vice president. That's not the issue. That's a red herring. The issue is there are a lot of jurisdictions in this country that have institutionalized uh, the history and legacy of race. That what is happening. That's why you see the headlines that we've seen recently of one police officer bragging that he's been stopping uh, people of color so that they can give them and charging them with felonies so they will not be able uh, to vote uh, anymore. That is racism. And that is an institution that's going on. Uh, COVID uh, down in the, uh, Minneapolis uh, just mm -hmm. got convicted 
for doing something racist. And now the entire police department is being investigated, being investigating the police department in Louisville, Kentucky. What are they investigating? Not the country, but those departments. So there are racial elements existing in this country that have dire consequences to the degree of the supreme sacrifice that anybody can make. George, this man lost his life because of one racist. And while we arguing about whether or not it applies to the country, no, it does not apply to the country. It never did apply to the country. Slavery itself only applied to uh, several states in the country, never the entire country. So then let's talk about your other South Carolina colleague, Senator Lindsey Graham, who on uh, one of the Sunday shows last weekend said flat out, there is no systemic racism in the United States. What would you say to Senator Graham on that point? Nothing. <laughs> I thought my audio went out, but no nothing at all. Nothing. Okay, well then what would you say to other Americans who heard Lindsey Senator Graham say that and nod in agreement that, there, oh, there's no systemic racism, disabuse them of that, of that thought? I would ask them to watch the evening news every evening before going to bed, read the morning papers every morning when you get up from bed, and what the stories that are being reported and ask you, whether or not anything is systemic about the race issues that they read about. And speaking of systemic, you, you've talked about the sort of reinvigorated Justice Department and how now the Justice Department is doing pattern and practice investigations in Minneapolis over the killing of George Floyd, in Louisville over the killing of Breonna Taylor, um, the Justice Department has announced federal charges, either that they're seeking or talking about seeking, against Derek Chauvin. They've gotten involved in, they're doing an invest a civil rights investigation in the killing of Andrew Brown in North Carolina. Uh, all of this is happening in the context of the conversation that's happening, the negotiations that are going on to get the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed. As we sit here right now, how confident are you? that the differences, between, the, the differences between Democrats and Republicans on this bill could be um, surpassed and this bill could get passed in the Senate and on President Biden's desk, desk for a signature? I'm very confident that something will get to them. You know, uh, it's not gonna be everything that I would want, uh, but I've long since got over the fact uh, that I uh, would ever uh, sacrifice uh, what's good uh, in search of what's perfect. Uh, I always believe uh, that we have to begin the process somewhere. So uh, if we cannot get everything that we want uh, this time around, let's get what we can get, come back later for the rest. You know, I adhere to Lyndon Johnson's uh, adage that a half loaf is better than no loaf at all. Uh, so let's do it. Do what we can, uh, hopefully everything, but if not everything, do what we can, and let's work on getting the votes we need uh, maybe next year or the year after that. You see, I'm convinced that we are gonna surprise a lot of people in this country in next year's elections. Those people who are looking at what's traditional and, and, and the fact that the 
party in the White House will lose uh, in the House of Representatives. We don't have any room to lose anything, and we ain't going to lose anything. We're going to win next year because we are connected with the American people, and we are going to win the election. Um, all right. We're going to put a pin in that. Uh, because I want to talk to you more about that, but I don't want to move uh, too far from, from po police reform. And I want to have a question from, from a, a viewer, uh, Kathy Wood from Maine. And her question is, how can the outcome of police reform be different from all the other attempts? She also goes on to write, it's quite discouraging. Well, I, th I think that we have had to have some experiences. I really believe uh, that the verdict, the Sherman verdict, was a moment, just like Selma was a moment. Selma, because of Lyndon Johnson, the United States Congress, in six months, it became a movement. I believe that what happened in Minneapolis with that verdict was a moment. And because of this precedent, in this Congress, we are going to turn it into a movement. So I would say uh, to Ms. Wood, I think was her name, mm -hmm. don't be discouraged. Let's hold on to your dreams and aspirations for a more perfect union. I think we're going to take steps over the next several days and months uh, to regain the momentum toward a more perfect union. And passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act will be part of that movement. All right, now let's go back to the, uh, what I would consider a rather provocative statement you made, and that is you think Democrats are gonna hold on to, to the majority in the House. Um, traditionally, the, the party in power in the White House loses the majority or loses seats in the House in the midterm elections. And as you pointed out, the Democratic majority in the House right now is razor thin. So why, what gives you such optimism that Democrats will actually gain seats, if not hold on to the majority, but gain seats next year? Because uh, you can see Democrats coming together. You just mentioned uh, that there are some progressives who are expressing surprise uh, at this president. I'm not surprised at this president. And I think that the surprise that they're expressing now, they are going to turn that surprise into energy, and we are going to go to the American people next year as a party more unified than we have ever been before. This whole notion of the, you ain't far left enough, or you too far right, we are throwing all that out of the window. We are going to campaign next year, showing the American people that we can govern. And I do believe we are going to get rewarded uh, at the polls next year, unlike anything people have ever seen. I'll remind you, this will not be uh, earth shattering. We did this before. Uh, it was the reason uh, that Newt Gingrich uh, got chased out of town. It's because he predicted uh, that the Democrats were not going to vote and they were going to vote and they were going to regain. Uh, they were going to be this vast majority. How many seats they were going to grow? They didn't. We did just the opposite. We're going to do the same thing next year. Okay, so there's democratic enthusiasm and the party is united, um, uh, as you say. And so that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation 
is the Republican Party writ large, and then the Republican parties in the states. And we've been talking about states from Florida and Georgia and Texas and uh, more that are putting in uh, restrictions that'll make it more difficult for people to vote. So, uh, so which is which is going to be bigger? Um, it, will the wall to voter participation that's being built up by those states I mentioned be will be so high that this blue wave that you're talking about won't be able to crash over? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I know they're going to try to do it, but you know. Uh, I grew up uh, with people all around me uh, saying uh, things like when people put the stumbling blocks in front of you, turn them into stepping stones. That's what I believe very strongly. Uh, when, when the world gives you lemons, make lemonade. I believe that very strongly. Uh, so I'm very uh, bullish uh, on our party. I'm very uh, convinced that the American people are very satisfied with being put back on track uh, on this pursuit of a more perfect union, and they are going to reward us uh, for having done so. I feel that very strongly. So I can't, I can't have you here uh, and not talk about a, a little bit of controversy that you're, you're involved in. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. You have been fined. $5,000 for an incident at the Capitol on April 20th, where you allegedly avoided a metal detector before entering the House floor. You've said you're going to appeal that fine. What happened? Well, what happened was uh, I just had, uh, as you may know, uh, you see me without glasses today because I had right. uh, cataract surgery uh, and I was on the floor voting, having gone through uh, the magnetometer. Uh, I had to rush out. I had to put uh, eye drops in my eyes. I had to do four times a day. I went out towards the bathroom uh, on the other side of the building, put the drops in my eyes, uh, uh, answered the phone on my way back in. One of my security details was standing there with the gentleman uh, at the magnetometer, and they beckoned to me. And I walked toward them. Uh, and that's all that happened. You know, um, I would never, ever do anything to circumvent the rules of the House, not intentionally. I will never, ever do anything to make those people's jobs that we hire to keep us secure, to make their jobs difficult. I work too hard to help them get those jobs. I answer every one of them as Mr. and Mrs. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. And they will tell you, nobody in the House of Representatives or the Senate treat them with more dignity and respect than yours truly. So this whole thing got misrepresented by a member on the other side of the aisle. Uh, and I um, uh, will hope, uh, and I've explained it to everybody, and I've asked them, pull the tapes and look at uh, the tapes of me going off the floor and back on, and you will see what really happened. I would never intentionally circumvent uh, the magnetometers. I go through them all day, every day. And so, uh, Whip Clyburn, so you're you're appealing this this you're appealing the fine. What's the next What's the next step? Want well, to know? I was uh, uh, I got the written communication. They asked me uh, to let them know my side within seven days. I think I did it 
within seven hours, and you'll see what happens. Um, and one more question for you, and that is how hopeful are you that there will actually be a formal commission to look into what happened um, surrounding the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th? I'm very hopeful, uh, and I think we will. Uh, my longtime friend, Bennett Thompson, uh, has been entrusted uh, with pulling uh, the legislation together. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has given that re responsibility to him. Uh, and he, too, uh, contrary to what people might think, uh, Bennett is very good at reaching out across the aisle, uh, reconciling differences, uh, coming up uh, with bipartisan legislation, and I think he's going to do that. And with that, we are going to leave it there. House Majority Whip James Clyburn of the great state of South Carolina, thank you very much for coming back to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for having me. All right, have a good afternoon. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Come back at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time today when my colleague David Ignatius will interview General John Raymond, the first Chief of Space Operations at U.S. Space Force. You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. Once again, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for tuning in to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.